Alright, welcome back to the Hemingway List podcast. The podcast where we do things the Hemingway. This is book 11, chapter 16, and while I do this podcast and read this chapter, I'm having my eyebrows groomed. It is very awkward and I'm scared to move my head. What does leaving the items mean for the future of the Rostovs? And what do you make of Natasha's role in this chapter? Does it seem at all out of character? What benefit does Berg bring to the scene? Twisted every way says, The Rostovs will never see these possessions again and be left even more destitute after the war, is my guess. How funny that Berg is concerned with buying some furniture at this time, but I suppose that happens all the time at desperate moments. It seems very Berg-like, very Vera-like to um, be after furniture at a time like this. How's my eyebrows looking? Beautiful. <laughs> I've never had my eyebrows groomed. Husting says this. This is the most endearing I have found the Rostovs. To date, they have largely acted selfishly and have lost their wealth and a fiancé as a result. Here, they lose their wealth, but it is by choice, a selfless choice, and that to aid their countrymen wounded defending the fatherland. True. I think it was quite admirable what they did in the previous chapter. Clearing all their possessions out of their carts so that they could fit wounded soldiers in there. You can't really knock them for that. Alright, here's chapter 17. And are we now onto the second eyebrow? Is that how long it takes to groom an eyebrow? That's not very long. Before two o'clock in the afternoon, the Rostov's four carriages packed full and with the horses harnessed, stood at the front door. One by one, the carts with the wounded had moved out of the yard. The caliche in which Prince Andre was being taken attracted Sonia's attention as it passed the front porch. With the help of a maid, she was arranging a seat for the Countess in the huge high coach that stood at the entrance. Why are you laughing? Did you ruin my eyebrows? <laughs> sorry. Whose caliche is that? She inquired. Why are you saying sorry? You did ruin my eyebrows. What did you do to my eyebrows? I didn't. It's good. Okay. Whose caliche is that? She inquired, leaning out of the carriage window. Why didn't you know, miss? Replied the maid. The wounded prince. He spent the night in our house and is going with us. But who is it? What is his name? It's our intended that was Prince Bolkonsky himself. They say he's dying, replied the maid with a sigh. Sonia jumped out of the coach and ran to the countess. The countess, tired out and already dressed in shawl and bonnet for her journey, was pacing up and down the drawing room waiting for the household to assemble, for the usual silent prayer with closed doors after, before starting. Natasha was not in the room. Mmm, Mama. <laughs> that says Mama, not Mmm. Mama, said Sonia. Prince Andre is here, mortally wounded. He's going with us. The countess opened her eyes in dismay and, seizing Sonia's arm, glanced around. Natasha, she murmured. At that moment, this news had only one significance for both of them. They knew their Natasha, an alarm as to what would happen if she heard this news, stifled all sympathy for the man they both liked. Natasha does not know yet, but he is going with us, said Sonia. You say he's dying? Sonia nodded. The countess put her arms around Sonia and began to cry. The ways of God are past finding out, she thought. 
feeling that the almighty hand, hitherto unseen, was becoming manifest in all that was now taking place. Well, Mama, everything is ready. What's the matter? asked Natasha, as with animated face she ran into the room. Nothing, answered the Countess. If everything is ready, let us start. And the Countess bent over her reticule to hide her agitated face. Sonia embraced Natasha and kissed her. Natasha looked at her inquiringly. What is it? What's happened? Nothing, no. Is it something very bad for me? What is it? persisted Natasha with her quick intuition. Sonia sighed and made no reply. The Count, Petya, Madame Schoss, Mavra Kuzminichna and Vasilich came into the drawing room and having closed the doors they all sat down and remained for some moments silently seated without looking at one another. The Count was the first to rise and with a loud sigh crossed himself before the icon. All the others did the same. Then the Count embraced Mavra Kuzminichna and Vasilich who were to remain in Moscow and while they caught at his hand and kissed his shoulder he patted their backs lightly with some vaguely affectionate and comforting words. The Countess went into the oratory and there Sonia found her on her knees before the icons that had been left here and there hanging on the wall. The most precious ones with which some family tradition was connected were being taken with them. In the porch and in the yard the men whom Petra had armed with swords and daggers, with trousers tucked inside their high boots and with belts and girdles tightened, were taking leave of those remaining behind. As is always the case at a departure, much had been forgotten or put in the wrong place, and for a long time two men servants stood, one on each side of the open door, and the carriage steps waiting to help the countess in, while maids rushed and cushions and bundles from the house to the carriages, the caliche, the, fan- the phaeton, and back again. Have you finished? Um, I need to look at it straight on, so we'll fix it up again afterwards. Alrighty. Ooh, they feel different. And an eyebrow haircut. Uh, they always will forget everything, said the Countess. Don't you know I can't sit like that? And Danusha, the celeb. Sorry. And Danusha, with clenched teeth, without replying but with an aggrieved look on her face, hastily got into the coach to rearrange the seat. Oh, those servants, said the Count, swaying his head. Ephim, the old coachman, Ephim, who was the only one the Countess trusted to drive her, sat perched up high on the box and did not so much as glance around at what was going on behind him. For thirty years' experience he knew it would be some time yet before the order, be off in God's name, would be given to him. And he knew that even when it was said he would be stopped once or twice more while they sent back to fetch something that had been forgotten. And even after that he would again be stopped and the Countess herself would lean out of the window and beg him for the love of heaven to drive carefully down the hill. He knew all this and therefore waited calmly for what would happen. With more patience than the horses, especially the near one, the chestnut falcon who was pawing the ground and chomping his bit. At last all were seated, the carriage steps were folded and pulled up, the door was shut, somebody was sent for a travelling case and the Countess leaned out and said what she had to say. Then Ephim deliberately doffed his hat and began crossing himself. The postillion and all the other servants did the same. 
off in God's name, said Ephim, putting on his hat. Start. The postillion started the horses, the off-pole horse tugged at his collar and high springs creaked, and the body of the coach swayed. The footman sprang onto the box of the moving coach, which jolted as it passed out of the yard. Onto the uneven roadway, the other vehicles jolted in their turn, and the procession of carriages moved up the street. In the carriages, the caliche and the phaeton all crossed themselves as they passed the church opposite the house. Those who were to remain in Moscow walked on either side of the vehicles, seeing the travellers off. Rarely had Natasha experienced so joyful a feeling as now, sitting in the carriage beside the countess and gazing at the slowly receding walls of forsaken, agitated Moscow. Occasionally she leaned out of the carriage window and looked back and then forward at the long train of wounded in front of them. Almost at the head of the line she could see the raised hood of Prince Andrei's caliche. She did not know who was in it, but each time she looked at the procession her eyes sought that caliche. She knew it was right in front. In Kadrino from the Nitsitsky, Presnya and Podnitsky, Podnovinsk streets came several other trains of vehicles similar to the Rostovs, and as they passed along the Sodoveya street, the carriages and carts formed two rows abreast. As they were going round the Sakharev water tower, Natasha, who was inquisitively and alertly scrutinizing the people driving or walking past, suddenly cried out in joyful surprise, Dear me, Mama Sonia, look at him. It's he. Who? Who? Look, he's on my word, it's Bezikov, said Natasha, putting her head out of the carriage and staring at a tall, stout man in a coachman's long coat, who, from his manner of walking and moving, was evidently a gentleman in disguise, and who was passing under the arch of the Sukarev Tower, accompanied by a small, sallow-faced, bearded old man in a frieze coat. Yes, it really is Bezikov, in a coachman's coat, with a queer-looking old boy, really, said Natasha. Look, look. No, it's not he. How can you talk such nonsense? Mama, screamed Natasha, I'll stake my head on it. It's he. I assure you. Stop, stop. She cried at the coachman, but the coachman could not stop, for from the Maschansky street came more carts and carriages, and the Rostovs were being shouted at to move on and not block the way. In fact, however, though, no, though now much farther off than before, the Rostovs all saw Pierre, or someone extraordinarily like him, in a coachman's coat going down the street with head bent and serious face beside a small beardless old man who looked like a footman. The old man noticed a face thrust out of the carriage window gazing at them and respectfully touching Pierre's elbow said something to him and pointed to the carriage. Pierre, evidently engrossed in thought, could not at first understand him, at least, sorry, at length, when he had understood and looked in the direction the old man indicated he recognised Natasha and following his first impulse stepped instantly and rapidly toward the coach. But having taken a dozen steps, he seemed to remember something and stopped. Natasha's face leaning out of the window beamed with quizzical kindliness. Peter Kurilovich, come here. We have recognized you. This is wonderful, she cried, holding out her hand to him. What are you doing? Why are you like this? Pierre took, out, took her outstretched hand and kissed it awkwardly as he walked along beside her while the coach still moved on. What is the matter, Count? asked the Countess in a surprised and commiserating tone. "'What? What? Why? Don't ask me,' said Pierre, and looked around at Natasha, whose radiant, happy expression, of which he was conscious without looking at her, filled him with enchantment. "'Are you remaining in Moscow, then?' Pierre hesitated. "'In Moscow?' he said in a questioning tone. "'Yes, in Moscow. Goodbye.' 
Oh, if only I were a man, I'd certainly stay with you. How splendid, said Natasha. Mama, if you'll let me, I'll stay. Pierre glanced absently at Natasha and was about to say something, but the Countess interrupted him. You were at the battle, we heard. Yes, I was, Pierre answered. There will be another battle tomorrow, he began. But Natasha interrupted him. But what is the matter with you, Count? You are not like yourself. Oh, don't ask me, don't ask me. I don't know myself. Tomorrow. But no, goodbye, goodbye, he muttered. It's an awful time. And dropping behind the carriage, he stepped out onto the pavement. Natasha continued to lean out of the window for a long time, beaming at him with her kindly, slightly quizzical, happy smile. All right, there we go. Another chapter down. What is Count Bezikov up to? Wandering around like no one owns him. All right, have your say about it over on the subreddit. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you tomorrow.